On a week like this, when our nation remembers its inception, all of the triumphs associated with that and also some of the internal contradictions that are associated with that era in our nation's history, I get compelled to pull my David McCullough books off the shelf and see 1776. Or on Tuesday night, I watched an episode of that HBO uh, miniseries on John Adams with Paul Giamatti, right? Like, wonderful stuff. And then, as it were, I also picked off the shelf my unfinished copy of Ron Chernow's biography of Alexander Hamilton. Uh, It's long. And some of you may know the musical more than you may know the book, but obviously the musical was based on the book. And if you know anything about Alexander Hamilton's story, you know it is an unlikely story. There is no reason, no explainable reason for how he got to where he got. He was born into a single-parent household. He, he barely survived a hurricane there. He, he suffered all sorts of the vagaries and vicissitudes of that era. And he was a person that it wouldn't even have made it to America apart from the benevolence of strangers. By the time he's 14... He has, he's been given a charter to run a company. By the age of 28, he's not only become George Washington's aide-de-camp, he becomes the Secretary of the Treasury of the incipient nation. He would be almost the one single-handedly to formulate the banking system upon which the government was based. And in the musical that sort of encapsulates his life, that likes to, likes to highlight some of those things, Alexander Hamilton is put forth as the embodiment of diligence. That whatever he gave himself to, he gave himself wholeheartedly to it. There was nothing distracted about him. Everything was unremitting about his work. He taught himself the law and passed the bar exam within nine months. 28 years old, he's the Secretary of the Treasury. He embodies diligence. And so in the musical, from the very first song, you hear him saying, there's a million things I haven't done. Just you wait. Just you wait. And we all listen to that and we go, now that's a story. And yet in that same biography and especially in that same musical, there's a lot of voices outside of himself that are looking upon Alexander Hamilton, not only with respect and admiration, but with a certain measure of pity. Because they know that what drives him to be diligent is also costing him. And so many of them will say to him, how can you write Every day and night. How can you write like you're running out of time? How can you write like you need it to survive? Even his own wife, Eliza, at one point in one song in the musical says, Look around. It's a miracle that you're even alive. You will never be satisfied. He embodies this ambition. He embodies this thing called diligence. But he is driven by something that leads to his undoing. He does in such a way that he is undone by it. And I think the reason why this biography and that musical captures the American imagination is because that is our story. There is a part of us that would like to know the kind of diligence that he embodied that could give ourselves so singularly and unremittingly to something that we would not be distracted by it and that in the course of our events and our lives, some fruit might be born of it. We long to be that, and yet we also know that when we try to be that diligent, there is something about our motivation that leaves us undone. That there is a greater cost to our investment than any benefit that might come from it. And we wonder, we wonder if it's really diligence that we're 
pursuing, if not something else. It's like we need wisdom. Wisdom to know what it means to use the time that is given us with all the diligence we can muster, but to do so in a way that doesn't end up costing us more than what it was worth. We are in a series on the Proverbs. And we are looking for wisdom in every aspect of human experience that we can find. Where we're looking at today is what we need in the way of wisdom to be diligent. And we're going to hear that. We're going to listen to three passages, but we're going to focus on one that, that actually speaks like a parable. And that parable will actually be the absence of diligence. It will show its opposite. And so we're going to see something about diligence in three ways. The absence of diligence in a dramatized way. The practice of diligence realized. But most importantly, the motive for diligence and how that's catalyzed. It's absence dramatized. It's practice realized. And it's only sustainable motive catalyzed. All of that from a little parable in the Proverbs. If you're able to stand, we're going to read. We're reading from the Proverbs, starting in chapter 6. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? I passed by the field of a sluggard, by the vineyard of a man lacking sense. And behold, it was all overgrown with thorns. The ground was covered with nettles. Its stone wall was broken down. And then I saw and considered it. I looked and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Many a man proclaims his own steadfast love, but a faithful man, who can find? This is the pointed word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. This passage is one of those unique moments in the whole book of Proverbs, which, as you've become accustomed to, is usually just sort of two-line little axioms. Here's a moment that tells a story. A story with a point. And that story, first of all, we have to reckon with the setting. What is the setting of the story? You hear it in verse 30. I passed by the field of a sluggard, by the vineyard of a man lacking sense. We're talking about the land. And as if you've heard us say in previous sermons on the Proverbs, when you talk about land from the mind of an Israelite, you're talking about something more than real estate. You're talking about something more than property. You're talking about something sacred. Sacred because it's their survival. The reason the Old Testament speaks so often of famines is because it meant the decimation of everything. It's about the land, silly, because we will not survive without it. That's why we need our land. It was our survival. It was our stability. And if you think of the land in those terms, 
not just as something that you grow crops on, but that which is your very survival, your very ability to withstand any kind of life experiences, then you also have to see it as a gift. And the Old Testament, if it is clear on anything, it is the way that Israel is encouraged to see the land upon which they stand and in which they live as a gift. You hear Moses speak of it in Deuteronomy 6. The Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give to you with great and good cities that you did not build and houses full of all good things that you did not fill and cisterns that you did not dig and vineyards and olive trees you did not plant. Moses is underscoring the reality of all of that because if you forget the things that are a gift, you think of them in a different way. You don't realize that as gifts, those things have been entrusted unto you. And so in Israel's collective consciousness, everybody that would speak for God was there to say, this is a gift, don't forget it. That's the setting in which this parable plays out. But this setting has a main character. And that character is referred to as a sluggard. Not a word you've probably used maybe ever If you wanted to update the language, you might substitute the word slouch for sluggard. Now, this sluggard has a profile, and the Proverbs does a really good job of unpacking that profile. You kind of heard it alluded to there at the end of the passage about the ant when it says, How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? What's a sluggard? Someone who is always delaying the inevitable, always putting off what they know they need to do. And as a consequence of that, they frustrate everybody around them. A sluggard like it's put in chapter 10, verse 26, like vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes, so is the sluggard to those who send him. You want somebody to be dependable, you want somebody to show up on time, you want somebody to get their stuff done and they just don't get it done. Ah, sluggard. They're delaying stuff, they frustrate people, and they're so unaware, so obtuse to what they're doing that they compromise themselves in the end. And so you heard there in chapter 20 and 21, the sluggard does not plow in the autumn. He will seek at harvest and have nothing. What the sluggard desires will kill him, for his hands refuse to work. Now, with that kind of profile, you, you might think that he's something of a passive person or, or sort of a pushover. But this sluggard is so convinced of his way that he is not easily dissuaded from his actions. So in 26.16, you heard it said, The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. He's convinced, this is good, I am fine, all will be well, peace in our time. That's the profile of a sluggard that plays out in this very brief plot of the parable. What happens? The storyteller looks at the field of the sluggard, and what does it say? Behold, it was all overgrown with thorns. The ground was covered with nettles, and its stone wall was broken down. The storyteller pauses. And contemplates. And there's four different verbs there that speak of him getting something from just that walk by that field. And what does he learn? That whatever happened here didn't happen overnight. 
Thorns may be pervasive and prolific, but they don't spring up overnight. They don't choke everything overnight. And there were no backhoes to bump into brick wall, to bump into stone walls. Stone after stone after stone had to fall down for that wall to break down. It didn't happen overnight. This was not an instant calamity. It was a function of a prolonged neglect. And that's why, even if this storyteller doesn't know who owned that field, doesn't even know the name of that owner, he can still tell. Sluggard. He can still tell this person had a problem with just committing himself or herself to a little daily maintenance about just pulling a thorn here, about just replacing a stone there. If only that, this would not have been the outcome of his field. That's the plot from which we get the point, the little moral of the story. And that point is its own irony. Because apparently the owner of this field had enough insight, took enough effort to plan it, to to imagine what it would look like, to to plant the seed in which the vines might grow, to even build a stone wall around it. That doesn't happen overnight either. That took time. He had enough sense. He had enough interest and wherewithal to put it together. And then, for whatever reason, he did not see fit to attend to it afterward. He gave up on it. He preferred doing other things, like a a little rest, a little recreation. Uh, Maybe like to play a little chess. Whoever knew what it was. Just something else other than attending to what it needed. Are any of those things bad? Is, is rest or recreation or just sort of folding of the hands bad? No. But he drifted in that direction for so long that bang. In the end, calamity. Poverty like being robbed out from under your nose. And the inferences that you gain from that little ironic moral of the story, uh, some of them are sobering inferences, like this. Uh, neglect never feels like neglect at the time. I mean, there's, you know, no one rather conspires, I think today I'll be negligent. <laughs> it just sort of happens. It's, it's subtle, but over time it's potent. So neglect never feels like neglect at the time, but the consequences of neglect can be ruinous. Loss can be immeasurable. And in the end, you create more work for yourself for your absence of diligence. That's the the more sobering inferences from the parable. The the maybe more encouraging inferences that you kind of have to work for because here's the, again, an an example of its absence. The, The encouraging ideas about diligence are this. Diligence itself is not arduous. It's just a little by little each day, a little, a little regular upkeep. Again, pull the thorn, man. Replace the stone, honey. Just a little of that. It's not a, a, like a labor-intensive effort. And not only is it not arduous, it actually is kind of like compounded interest. The payoff is even greater than the, the investment. Because when you are diligent... This little parable is implying, or yeah, is implying is that, that there is great survival to be driven, derived from that effort. You, you get more than what you put into it. And, and not only do you get what you, you sought from it, you, you get a certain measure of satisfaction and delight. Uh, ben Seneker is down in Brevard this week preaching. When you see him again, I encourage you, no, I admonish you, to walk up to him and say, tell me about your fence. 
because he and his family just built a new fence in their backyard. And it's beautiful. It undulates with the field. It's all in this wonderful um, you know, arrangement, and it's, it looks really sharp. And, and he admitted to me earlier this week, he and his wife go to the back window with their coffee cups and just stare at the fence. <laughs> and I get it. Because it's like there's something more to it than knowing that somebody else built it. When you did that and you did it well, there's satisfaction in that. Because they were diligent, there's something more to it. There's survival from it. There's satisfaction in it. There's, there's purpose and meaning in it. But, but also there's preparation for it. Greater preparation in it. When you are faithful in a little, Jesus says, you might be entrusted with more. And, and surely Alexander Hamilton is the embodiment of that phenomenon. He, he showed himself faithful in a few things, and boy, did his plate get full. And he didn't bat an eye, despite everybody trying to tell him otherwise. There's goodness. There's wondrousness. There's, there's stuff you didn't bargain for if diligence becomes your reason for putting yourself to the plow in that way. Which is all great, and it may be impressive, and maybe even catchy. But how does it work in our example? How does it work in our experience? How does it work relevantly to our condition? Because there be maybe many of you in this room that think, look, I am... Uh, agriculture, I go to Ingalls, right? Got that covered. Not really worried about that. And as far as diligence goes, look, all my bills are paid. Um, my tires are properly inflated. Um, I have checked my cholesterol level. Um, like everything, I'm, I'm in the black. I'm solvent. So I am dedicated to which I might suggest this idea when we're trying to realize or practice diligence in a realistic way you don't have to be a slouch to be a sluggard you don't have to be a slouch to be a sluggard you can be the busiest person you know and still be a sluggard why why is that possible how is that possible only two things have to be true for you um, to be a sluggard even if you're not a slouch and the first is this all you have to do is have disordered allegiances and what I mean by that is that the things that um, are, are peripheral in your life, you make them central. Or, or the things that are central in your life, um, you, you make peripheral. The, the, the important stuff, you, you kind of put down the priority list. And the stuff that, that really should be at the center, like it's, it's just not there. You, you prefer something else to what needs to be the thing that you prefer. And, and that has nothing to do with laziness. It has nothing to do with idleness. It has everything to do with the way you assign value. You don't have to be a slouch to be a sluggard. And that's yours and my lifelong challenge. You and I, we, like, maybe we're not valuing um, uh, sleep over survival. Maybe that's not our thing. Not our hang-up. But to say that you and I are not susceptible to making some less important things more important, that's it. That's our gig. And I need a little help from, from C.S. Lewis to kind of flesh it out in a very real-world term. He, he wrote a letter to a friend about first things first and, and the way second things begin to encroach upon what should be first things. And listen to what he says, two, two very um, uh, familiar examples. Uh, the woman who makes a dog the center of her life loses, in the end, not only her human usefulness and dignity, but even the proper pleasure of dog-keeping. The man who makes alcohol his chief good loses not only his job, but his palate 
and all power of enjoying the earlier and only pleasurable levels of intoxication. You can't get second things by putting them first. You get second things only by putting first things first. Okay, we could sit here for the rest of the day and ponder what he's getting at but here. But, but can you see that if you value things that are really in second position so much that you make them first, in the end you lose out on the good of even that. Um, some kids, they go to college and they think, I have never had this much freedom. And what do we do? We are naturally inclined to using all the freedom that we can. Books be gone. I have all of this freedom. And then the end of the semester comes along and they realize, oh my goodness, because I have not been diligent to my task, I have actually sacrificed my ability to be free. And so I had a college pastor tell me a long time ago, your disciplines buy you freedom. Your diligence buys you freedom. Because you've given yourself into a daily kind of routine in that way, such that at the end of the semester, you can actually go to bed before 2 a.m. Yeah! You don't have to walk around campus for the last two weeks in the constant churning of anxiety because you've made first things first and not second things first. Next week, um, we're going to talk about sex. So parents, your job is to go home and read Proverbs chapter 5 and decide whether you want your students to be around for the sermon next week. I promise I will show no clips from Monty Python. (laughs) There'll be no diagrams. But we are going to talk about it. And we're actually going to pick up where C.S. Lewis leaves off about that very thing. Because talk about being able to let second things become a first thing. All of life presents itself with an opportunity to prioritize. And if we make second things first things, we lose on everything. Disordered, distorted, disordered allegiances can make you a sluggard without being a slouch. The other thing that can make you a sluggard without being a slouch is all you have to do is forget that everything is a gift. What is the land to an Israelite? It's a gift. The land itself was a gift. The capacity to plant and harvest was a gift. The sun and the water that fell upon your field by which it might grow was a gift. And the fruit that came from it was a gift. And they had to remember that. Our problem is we take it all for granted. It's in our lives. It's always there. We are, like Bart Simpson prays in one of those episodes, as his as Marge encourages him to say grace, Bart Simpson says, Dear God, we bought this stuff with our own money, so thanks for nothing. <laughs> you may not think that, but you may feel it. And if we forget that it's a gift, we think of it in a different way. And then we're so easily discontented with what we do have that we get this little hollow in our heart It feels very empty, and what do we do? We try to fill it with other things that we think will fill it, and then 30 minutes later, we discover even that didn't help. When you don't think of things as a gift, you don't treat them as such. You don't treat them in the way that they've been entrusted unto you. And therefore, you are not all the more diligent to respect them in the way that they require. Diligence is simply having an ordered set of allegiances that sees everything as a gift. 
That's the recipe for diligence. Okay, great. Abstractions, wonderful. Where does it fit? Where does it relate? Let me, let's just think about where are things that we might properly associate with the idea of a field in a metaphorical sense. Let's talk about marriage for a minute. Marriages are those things you might consider to be a field, something that you have to nurture for it to um, be a nurturing place for you. Uh, Dan Allender is a name you've heard me talk about before. He's a counselor up in the Pacific Northwest, a really brilliant, insightful, and very humble counselor. He, in one book on marriage, uh, speaks of the, the myriad kinds of violations one can commit in a marriage. But the, the violation that few people want to talk about or acknowledge is what he calls the violation of indifference. Uh, it's the notion that when there are matters of significance that come up in your relationship, you just don't talk about them. When there are themes in your relationship that are, for whatever reason, charged with great emotion from one or both people, and you don't like that feeling, that awkward feeling, that unsettled feeling, and so what do you do? You dance around it. Because you think, I can still be intimate with you if I walk around conflict rather than walk through it. And he says, that's the violation of indifference. Because whatever tension might exist between you as a consequence of those things, that tension's got to go somewhere. And though, yeah, it might dissipate in a little while, it's coming back. It's coming back. And what compounds the violation of that indifference is that if you have children... They pick up on it, and they begin to think that what is more important than truth is peace and quiet. And they begin to think, I should never, ever rock the boat around here because everybody seems to have a problem with ever, ever talking about highly charged things. And if they learn that from you, it will take a long time to unlearn that from others. It compounds the tragedy, the violation of the neglect. So, so what's, well, how do you apply diligence in that domain? If you're married, I ask you this question. When is the last time you have had an open conversation about the quality of your relationship? <laughs> Why ruin a good moment like this by bringing up that kind of stuff, right? When's the last time you've ever just said, how are, how, how are we doing? When's the last time you've ever began to discuss something that was sort of an emotionally charged theme in your relationship that, that you just sort of skirted around for way too long, and it's just there, but it's not going away until you talk about it? If you, if you just ask those questions of each other, you, you have begun to apply new diligence. You have begun to maybe pull one of those thorns up or replace one of those stones on the wall, because your marriage is a field. You know what's also a field? Your children. Christian Smith is a sociologist at the University of Notre Dame, and he wrote two books in the last uh, six or ten years uh, doing a, uh, reporting the results of a longitudinal study of kids in the church. And, and by his you know, vast, deep, and insightful um, um, analysis of the way kids go in the church, he's, he's pretty straight up to say, look, there are many kids who, despite showing up for church every Sunday, the doors are open. A lot of them drift and discard their former devotion. Why? Um, he may be a sociologist and a scientist. He's also a believer, and so he is not discounting the sovereign hand of God in the way in which God works in our kids. And he's also not applying some sort of formula to things such that 
if you'll just do this, everything will continue seamlessly. He's not saying that. But he did say, from his research, the single biggest correlation, if not causation, in a kid's ongoing spiritual formation beyond high school is the involvement of their parents and a few other close adults that took an interest in their welfare who are interested in their spiritual formation, which is nothing more mysterious than just saying, hey, here's what the text teaches. Hey, this is how we see ourselves formed. We, this is how we read the Bible, and this is why we pray, and, and this is what it means to be part of a community, and this is why we serve in the ways that do, and, and this is what it means by sacrifice. And, and spiritual formation is, is nothing more than also creating a space in which they can ask questions and be really straight up with their doubts and you not be dismissive or disdainful of it, but to encourage it, because they're talking about it. And it's those same parents who, who saw drama camp and art camp and VBS and um, going to Honduras and shed and dig as supplements to their involvement in their kids' lives, but not substitutes. Who saw... Bree and Greg and Karen and Ashley and Jordan and Ruth and Abel and Ashley and the holders and Hen and everybody else that's involved with our youth. As, did I get them all? I missed them all. I, you know, I, they saw them as supplements but not substitutes for what the parents can do. The inferences from that is this. Look, to back off from your kid's spiritual formation is to sort of invite thorns and thistles to be growing up. And at the same time, though, it's not to say, look, it's all right on your shoulders because it isn't. Anybody that comes to God is drawn by God. But Christian Smith is saying, don't we see it as a privilege to be part of that process if we could? Plays there. Diligence plays there as it plays also in our marriages. Okay, wait. Okay, I'm not married. I have no kids. So how does this apply to me? Upstream of whether you are married or not, upstream of whether you are a parent or not, upstream of whether or not you are diligent or negligent, upstream of that is what you find in Proverbs 4.23. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the spring of life. What's upstream of everything? The condition of your heart. Everything flows from your innermost being. And Neglect of the condition of your heart can lead to an even more comprehensive poverty. Let's be clear about this one. I've said it before. I'll say it again. I'll probably keep saying it. There are plenty of moments in which our bodies conspire against our ability to know what is best for our hearts. There are plenty of physical things that can make it hard to reflect the kind of heart that we would want to have for ourselves. I know that. And I respect that. And I would seek treatment for that. But there are other instances in which the condition of our heart is simply the consequence of refusing to take a deeper look into what are those deepest deepest fears that we have and those fiercest unbridled angers that we find ourselves in. As a mentor of mine once said, Sometimes you've got to chase the rabbit. That there are ways that you respond to certain circumstances in certain ways that reflect something true about the deep conditions of your heart. And unless you chase that rabbit, 
it will continue to steal from you. It will continue to indicate something that needs to be discovered because that stuff did not get there overnight. And if it does not considered or surfaced, it will continue to wreak habit, havoc in your life. So I ask you, what, what rabbits do you need to chase? If, in fact, Paul says there towards the end of the letter at Galatians that um, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, if the extent to which that fruit of the Spirit is present or absent is indicative of what you most believe, sometimes. And sometimes it's worth asking ourselves, what is competing for my belief that leads to that condition of my heart? We've seen the absence of diligence dramatized. We begin to press into the practice of diligence realized. But look, everything comes down to motive. Everything comes down to, so what now and how? I mean, what we've heard from the passage is pretty clear. It's a warning. He's, He's trying to exhort his son or daughter to diligence because look, you, you, if you're not diligent, you are asking yourself for loss. And that is its own inducement and its own incentive and its own motive and it's fine. But there's more to our motive to new diligence. And I find that motive hinted at in one word in this passage. And it's probably the word you didn't expect to find it in. It's the word thorns. What? Yeah, the thorns are indicative of an absence of diligence. But if you know the the narrative arc of the Bible, you know that word shows up in other places too, like at the very beginning in Genesis 3. First parents think they know best, think they know better, think they can do quite well without your intervention, Lord. Thank you very much. And what happens? A curse comes upon them. And part of that curse is that from then on, their labor would require far more of them than it ever had before. And what was true of that land then, as a consequence of that curse, they would have to contend with thorns. It wasn't going to be as lush as once were. Thorns would there, and they'd have to wrestle with that. Because they thought they knew best. And what do sluggards think? I got this. I know what I'm doing. Relax. But thorns show up in another place in the scope of Scripture. In Proverbs 20, verse 6, the question is raised and without answer. Many a man proclaims his own steadfast love, but a faithful man who can find? I know a man. I know a man who was faithful. I know a man who demonstrated steadfast love from beginning to end. And that man, at one point in his life, was so badly neglected and mistreated until he was robbed of life. And that man, as he was being mistreated, as he was being robbed of life, wore a crown. And that crown was made of thorns. And to his dying breath, He did what we needed in order to reflect diligence. He showed us what a properly ordered allegiance would be by showing us what was most important. That this is my father's world. 
that the most important thing I can have is communion with that father and that by this son's blood, I might be reconciled to the God with whom I might find my life. He showed us what was important. He showed us what was priority. And at the same time he did that, he showed us that everything is of grace. Because anything he did then, anything he did there, was nothing was as a consequence of nothing that we had done and nothing that we deserved. And therefore, it was all of grace. And therefore, if you would want to be diligent, what is essential to a sustainable motivation toward diligence is not simply fear of loss, but of recognizing that everything that you have is of grace, that everything that you have is of gift. And when you see it as a gift, you see as an opportunity to steward, to cultivate, to nurture. Which is why there's one third motivation that's the most important. And why, if you would ever be diligent, you must lay your interest in being diligent at his feet. And it's because of this. Whatever your body weight was when you walked into this room this morning, now that I have laid out for us all the ways in which we are called to diligence, you might be feeling a little heavier now. And if we all decided that we were going to sit in a circle here and we were going to ask each other questions, so can you tell me something about your life where you feel like you wasted time? Can you tell me about anything where you feel like I have been negligent in that regard? I have neglected that field, whatever it was. I have spent my life doing something else and the peripheral was the central and the central was the peripheral and I didn't see it as a gift and that's all behind me and I don't know what to do about it. And so anything that I might say to you about being diligent feels like I'm putting a little knife in your back and pressing harder and harder and harder with each mention of the word because you feel regret at whatever examples of negligence you find yourself guilty of or think yourself guilty of. I would raise my hand to self. I get that. You might feel a kind of regret that's embodied in this moment towards the end of Schindler's List. If you know that story, Oscar Schindler was a real man who, by his own investment and risk, saved the lives of hundreds of Jews by employing them in his factory. And here in a sort of a fictionalized retelling of him departing from those Jews, he has this experience of saying goodbye and of reckoning with what he did and what he hadn't done.
stock of all that he did and all that he left undone and he felt nothing but regret in the moment in the anglican book of common prayer the prayer of confession uttered just prior to communion it states father forgive us for what we have done and what we have left undone and we feel that regret and when it comes to our diligence if ever we would give ourselves to it, we must come to the cross to find our motivation for it because this is why. Any new diligence cannot be to atone for past negligence. Any future diligence cannot be to create an identity for yourself whereby you might feel esteemed of God. Alexander Hamilton, he did all that he could. And if you will hear him, he is always interested in being able to ascend just a bit higher. Just a bit higher. And that's what motivated his diligence. And that's a form of doing that left him undone. If you and I, as a consequence of this sermon, would feel like I am going to be diligent in every field that I can because I need to atone for why I've been negligent or I need to create an identity for me, you will not follow that long. Only Jesus can atone. Only Jesus can bestow upon you an identity that has nothing to do with whether you've been diligent or negligent. It's of him. I don't know what your field is. I don't know where your vineyard is and I don't know what condition it's in. I know I'm having to ask myself that of the Lord this morning. Where do I need to give my attention to that I haven't? I just know this. You can't be diligent to atone or to impress. You can only be diligent because you see what has been entrusted to you as a gift. And then you finally begin to treat it in the way that it deserves. 
What's your field? How's your vineyard? Ask him. But ask the question through the lens of the cross. And then people won't be wondering, why do you do that all night? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.